We're still in the gym, so that means we get to play more of my favorite 80s music, right? How long, as the song goes? Well, until we go back into the sanctuary, until the reno's done. So I'm going to milk that for all it's worth. Today it's the Irish band U2, who after the Beatles are the most successful rock band of the past 50 years. And they're Christians too, did you know that? Over the years, U2 songs have been full of biblical imagery. And the song we just heard is called 40. And the title of the song is because its words are lifted right out of Psalm 40 in the Old Testament. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. So last week we wrapped up our sermon series in Genesis by looking at God's covenant with Abraham. And really you can think of the whole Old Testament as an exercise in waiting patiently for the Lord, waiting for a Messiah, waiting for God to save his people once and for all. And I was struck, I mean, I love that carol we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, but I was struck by those two words, Long Expected and all of the history, all of the longing and waiting that's wrapped up in those two words. And that's the story of Advent as well. We're waiting, but something's changed. Now our waiting has a destination. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know the story of the new covenant, the story of Jesus. That's why we can sing a new song with the hope that we bring to worship every Sunday and the hope that pervades our life together as the church. Today we start a new Advent series looking at the songs of Christmas in Luke's Gospel. We're going to begin with Mary's song. Next week it'll be Zachariah. And then after our Lessons and Carols service on December 22nd, on Christmas Eve, we'll hear the song of the angels, the Gloria. We've heard already in this Advent season that we wait in a particular way at this time of the year. We can't see the results yet. We can't hold them. We can't touch them. But we're invited into this posture of waiting, this faith-filled posture. And that's really hard for us. We are people who say, I can't wait. And we say that all the time. Our whole society is premised on impatience, if you think about it. I was at Costco this past week, and <laughs> like a voice calling in the wilderness would be the advent call to wait in that parking lot. 
Today, our story begins with two women who are waiting, who are expecting, quite literally. Elizabeth and Mary are expecting their babies to be born. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. And I think what I'd like us to do is to have silence as our prayer, what we sometimes call the prayer for illumination before the scripture reading. So let's pray in silence. Holy Spirit, we wait for you. Speak your word of peace into our hearts and minds. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to read Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. When were you last interrupted? Have you experienced something like that recently? A memorable interruption? I remember one time when my sermon was interrupted by a song. At my former church in downtown Toronto, a group of us used to go once a month to the Scott Mission on Spadina Avenue where we would lead the worship service that Sunday morning and then help to serve lunch afterwards. The Scott Mission, if you've never heard of it, is an amazing place. They provide meals and services of all kinds for people in need. It was started by a Polish Messianic Jew Presbyterian named Morris Zeidman in 1941. That is an interesting story, but it's a story for another time. Anyway, the Sunday service at the Scott Mission was held in a large room, which doubled as the waiting area for lunch. So in the winter, we had an increased attendance, let's just say, because, of course, it was cold outside. And I guess it was a bit of a captive audience situation, which might explain why the crowd wasn't always on its best behavior. And one Sunday, I was was filled with excitement about something I'd learned in a theology class at Knox College, and and I made the mistake of preaching on Trinitarian theology (laughs) and a big Greek word that I just learned, the word perichoresis. It's a word that describes the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know, no one at the Scott Mission seemed to care. (laughs) But when I explained that the word perichoresis means dance, this one guy in the audience, a regular named Larry, got pretty excited about that. And he decided to get up and to show us his best dance moves. And he was obviously an 80s, 80s guy, too, because he was breakdancing on the floor. And then he started singing. He started singing, and I still remember this so vividly, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila. He started slowly, but soon he was building up momentum. And all of a sudden, a percussion section formed at the back of the room. People were pounding on plastic chairs. Others began to join in the dance. The song continued, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, people dancing all over the place. My sermon was completely interrupted. I had prepared a very carefully crafted Trinitarian benediction. I didn't get to use it. The service was over. We don't like interruptions. Most of the time, we have plans. And we expect our plans to work out. That's why we made them to begin with. Today we encounter Mary, the mother of Jesus, at a moment when her plans begin to fall apart. But first we notice that this story starts with God. Mary isn't the way it begins. She isn't even the subject of its opening sentence. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Luke, the author of this gospel, always does this. In his gospel, named after him, and in the book of Acts, 
of which he's also the author. You can think of them as two parts of Luke's story of Jesus. Luke always makes clear that God is directing the action. If you believe the Bible, life is not random. The birth of Jesus is set in motion by God's purposes. And he sends an angel, a messenger, to communicate them. And yet Mary is greatly troubled. It's not the content of what the angel says to her that troubles her. Because the angel says, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That sounds pretty good to me. No, it's the magnitude of the interruption as it becomes clear. Mary knows that God wouldn't have spoken to her this way if something huge wasn't coming. And it does. She's going to have a baby. A baby like no other. This morning we're going to follow Mary through three stages in a journey. It starts with anxiety, it moves on to acceptance, and in the end to adoration and amazement. But anxiety is definitely where it starts. In that culture, an unmarried woman who found herself pregnant ran the risk of being stoned to death by her father and other men in the village. We can imagine that all Mary wanted was an ordinary life. She was already engaged, and that meant something quite different at that time in that culture from what it means to us today. It was a legally binding contract. It was like she was already married. And so news of her pregnancy was going to ruin everything, starting with herself. And it would be devastating to the people she loved the most. Her fiancé would have no reason to believe her. Her parents would be crushed. Scandal would break out. Everyone would know. It's no wonder she's troubled. She's terrified. I think most of us can relate to feeling anxious about the future, even to being greatly troubled. How has your life been interrupted in a significant way? Maybe that's happened to you quite recently. A surprise, something you weren't expecting. I'm sure you've encountered the unexpected and you reacted with shock, perhaps, with anger, maybe, with fear and a sense of loss. The truth is that few of us end up with a life that resembles the life we thought we'd have. Most of us didn't plan for a life that included serious financial challenges, major health problems, insecurity and uncertainty, being separated from family and friends, addiction, a child with special needs, divorce, unhappiness in our career, problems within our family, grief, loss of all kinds. And the list goes on. You didn't get what you hoped for, perhaps. Instead, God brought a new reality into your life, one you neither anticipated nor were prepared for. And how did you respond? I think many of us put our heads down and keep on going. We deal with it. What choice do we have after all, right? When my sister-in-law in Ireland got cancer, and I would be talking to Kenneth, my brother, on the phone, asking him how they were doing, he would often use a particular phrase to describe their situation. He would say, it is what it is. Have you heard people say that? 
I don't think that's true. I think it's almost always a lot more than what it appears to be. But maybe we'd rather not wait around to find out. I had a friend once who was was going through some hard stuff, and he had a spiritual director. That's someone who's kind of like a counselor, but different, because their focus and their training is to help people listen to God, to pay attention to the presence of God in your life. And so his spiritual director asked him to engage in a particular exercise, to reflect on the five biggest failures or setbacks in his life, and to journal about that, to write about that, to ponder that, to reflect on that. And I was struck, as I thought about that, I was struck by how rarely we reflect on those hard things in our lives. When our plans are interrupted in a bad way, we want to get right back on the treadmill as quickly as possible. We're much more likely to hide our difficulties. We're much more likely to run from our fears or the memory of them. All of us, like Mary, live with anxiety. If you tell me you're not anxious, you're either lying or you've buried it so deeply that you're going to be in trouble when it catches up with you. But here's the question. Does your anxiety keep you down? Does it keep you down in the miry clay, the muddy clay, the darkness, as Psalm 40 puts it? And could you imagine a light shining into that mire, that muck of your life? God throws Mary a lifeline. He wants to pull her up and out of her great trouble. He wants that for all of us. When Mary asks, how is this possible since I'm a virgin? The angel says two things to her. First of all, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And second, that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, will enable Mary to do and to be more than she could be by herself. The Spirit always does that. He multiplies our efforts. He renews our hearts and our minds. He breathes new life and new hope into us. And Mary is perhaps the supreme example of that. And then the angel goes on and says that the power of the Most High would completely surround her with his love. That's what it means to overshadow her, to encompass her, to enfold her. So two things. First of all, the spirit making possible what seems impossible and the reassurance that God is watching over her and has not forgotten her. And then a pointer. The Holy Spirit is always doing this too. A pointer to Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, who the angel says is pregnant despite everyone knowing that that could never happen. We'll talk about that more next week. All of this paves the way for Mary to move from being lost in her anxiety, caught up in it, to a place of peace and acceptance, a calm. And she utters her famous line, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And so we rightly see Mary as a model of humility and obedience, But still, we really don't know how Mary arrives at acceptance. We don't exactly know. 
There's no question she decided to trust God and she stepped out in faith to do that. But I think we'd be naive to assume that her struggles were over, that it was black and white. Mary remained completely human even after Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit within her. And so the journey we travel, like I think Mary traveled as well, from anxiety to acceptance to peace, is not overnight. It's not easy. It twists and turns. It doubles back on itself. Like faith, it comes slowly. It's a process that we muddle through. And we need help as we travel that journey as well. We need spiritual directors of all kinds. For Mary, there was Elizabeth. If telling the angel, may it be to me as you have said, was a turning point for Mary, you can imagine that her three months in the home of Elizabeth were the flesh on those bones. Her cousin's baby, soon to be born, John the Baptist, he would be called, leaps with joy in the womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, announces, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you bear. And that brings us to Mary's song. We don't know exactly when Mary uttered these words. I don't think she was in the middle of having a cup of tea with Elizabeth and suddenly jumped up and started singing. That would be weird. That would be musical theater. I have to say I'm not a big fan of musicals precisely for that reason, the weirdness. Can anyone relate to that? Let me make a case for it then. (laughs) I remember a few years ago when I finally got around to watching the movie Les Miserables. I'd heard so many good things about it, right? Anne Hathaway, Russell Crowe, Hugh Jackman. It sounded great. And then to my shock and my horror, Wolverine started singing. (laughs) That was it for me. I had to watch two or three good war movies before I felt like myself again. But the truth is that sometimes in life, we do spontaneously erupt in joy, in song. I remember the first time I heard Chloe's heartbeat on the ultrasound. I remember coming out of Women's College Hospital. I had an appointment with one of my professors at Emmanuel College. He was a stern, forbidding man. I walked into his office and I embraced him. (laughs) He was not impressed at all. I could have cared less. And then I went home and I did something that I, I never do. I went home and I wrote a poem about it. Can you relate to joy erupting in your life at times? With her song, Mary has arrived at amazement. She waited patiently for the Lord and he lifted her up out of her anxiety through acceptance, which is a peace that he granted her and into adoration and amazement. And so Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months and then returns home. Over that time, I think she saw where she'd come from, the trouble she was in, her coming to a point of trusting in God, that leap of faith she'd taken 
For us, I think the Song of Mary serves to stop the action. There's a lot of action going on here. You can think of it as, I don't know if you watched the Leafs game last night, but Sheldon Keith called the timeout early in the third period. Mike Babcock wouldn't have done that. <laughs> what does a timeout do for us? My son Callum plays volleyball, and I've been fascinated. I didn't know much about volleyball when he started. I've been fascinated by the role of the timeout in volleyball. So when the game's going badly, your team loses three, four, five points in a row, the coach will inevitably call a timeout. And you know, nine times out of ten, when the timeout's over and the game starts up again, you start scoring points. You start winning again. Now, why is that? Well, I'd like to ask Travis Oak at some point, Tom's volleyball coach, what he says in those timeouts. But if I had to imagine it, I think what he says is, take a breath. Remember who you are. Remember who we are together. Remember what you've learned. Take another breath. We can do this. And then I imagine the coach sends them back out on the court, onto the ice. I want to invite you to think of these songs of Christmas as timeouts in your life, in what for many of us, is a pretty familiar story. These songs, these poems uttered by Mary, Zachariah, the angels, Simeon, are moments of spiritual direction where we're forced, where we're asked, invited to notice what's really going on. They interrupt the flow of the story. They make us slow down. They create space for us to ponder what God is doing, to wonder at who he is and all he's done for us. And then the content of the song challenges our expectations too. It's a song of adoration. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord, which is why traditionally this poem, this song is called the Magnificat after its first word in the Latin translation. Mary declares that God is great. Her song points to God's character. It starts with who God is, and then it magnifies him for the rest of us to see. And God also magnifies Mary, his servant. That's the amazing part for me. God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble. God's magnification is the exact opposite of ours. In our culture, we hold up a magnifying glass to those who are rich and powerful. Not to the hungry, the homeless, the oppressed. God turns our expectations upside down. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And this explains why Jesus is such a threat to King Herod and to the ruling powers of his day. He announces that the first will be last. He welcomes the poor into his kingdom. And eventually, he will fully exert his power by giving it up. By giving up his life, by going to the cross, by dying so that we can have new life forever. So that we can receive the joy that leads us to sing a new song. Over the years, Mary's song, The Magnificat, has been banned by governments around the world. 
It was banned in Guatemala in the 1980s, in El Salvador in the 1990s because it was considered subversive. It was banned in Nazi Germany. According to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote this as the Nazis were coming to power, the Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It's at once the most passionate, the wildest, the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary we sometimes see in paintings. This song is none of the sweet, nostalgic tones as some of our Christmas carols. It's instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerless of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. The power and the promises of God are what move Mary from anxiety to acceptance and on into adoration and amazement. Mary's song tells the story of God's faithfulness, of his covenant with his people, starting with Abraham. And we retell that story every Sunday. I love the way that Joe Knox had the kids pray peace upon us and the way we responded. Across the generations, we tell that story. We root our lives in that story, the coming of God's peace in Jesus Christ. And we trust the author of the story because he is good. He is truly always good, even in the dead of winter. And so Mary now understands that all God's promises to his people are coming together and will be fulfilled in the baby growing inside of her. God's power is conceived in what will become the hope of the world our hope also. And so Mary sings. That's why she sings. She sings a new song. As we hear the stories of Advent and Christmas, as we travel our own journeys from anxiety through acceptance into adoration and amazement, with all of these things intermingled, we are in this together as God's church. I think of our new ministry to mums, the sweet mamas group that met here yesterday at the church for the second time. A few years ago, we wondered where God was leading us as a congregation at Courtright. We didn't have many new mums. The nursery was quiet. We prayed and we asked God to show us the way. In the past nine months, we've had nine babies born within our church community. And we have at least two others on the way. One within a week or so. We'll, we'll pray for that later. I bet when the sweet mamas met yesterday, there were some Marys and Elizabeths meeting for the first time in that room. But others of us are still waiting. And that can be the hardest thing. How will the Lord fulfill his promises to you? Mary's song is an invitation to trust him through whatever waiting you are experiencing right now. And it starts not with our own efforts to get it right. It starts with a song. The good news is that God doesn't wait for us to get it right. He loves us so much that he enters the world. He comes down to us in weakness and glory. God throws everything into pursuing us. Why would he do that? Because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And nothing can
can ever separate us from his love. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, you are the source of all life, and you hover over us as your church. I pray that you would continue to make us into something beautiful. Turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would more and more reflect him, his truth and his grace. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the words you gave Elizabeth, that we would speak blessing to each other, that you would change our hearts, that you would shape our conversation so that we can speak life to one another. But first, we need to listen. So in this busy season, would you silence us? Would you open us up to all that you have in store for us? Because you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.